You have to let the thing be wild. You have to not master it. Appreciating even the sublime aspects that are not attuned towards human flourishing necessarily. Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we can bullshit with impunity. I am, always was, and always will be Austin Hayden. That's a confident proposal. I'm currently Troy, but I don't know what will happen in the future. Well, we're locking it in right now, so this right here, this digitized version of you, always will be Troy. I, I'm not gonna. I, like I don't a, do. I don't do metaphysics, man. This is why I'm into ethics. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, so we're back, kinda. Um, we're we're trying to ramp things up. We forgot how to do everything. We don't know how to record. <laughs> we don't know how to it plug took us in half an hour to get started. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, but but we're here. We're we're kicking. Um, so we have a couple things that we want to say, just real quick at the top of the uh, show, just to let you know. Um, Obviously, you clicked on the title, so you know what we're talking about today. We're going to be talking about John Muir. We'll explain that in a little bit more. But um, we do have a couple of things that we need to say about, like the Patreon. Yeah, Troy, will you handle that? Yeah, so we just wanted to let all the uh, patrons know that uh, given the absence um, for, what was it, a year almost <laughs> or so? Yeah, almost. Like that. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Um, we're going to start the, the Patreon um in a month from when this is being recorded, which is on November 1st. Uh, so next month, we'll start the Patreon. Uh, this month is a freebie. Um, we do want to recognize that uh, uh, we, and by we, I mean Austin, has been paying for the hosting for the for the website to keep all the episodes live um, during the downtime. Um, so there's still some, some cost to that. But um, we've had the Patreon pause because we've been on a hiatus. And uh, yeah, we'll bring that back um, next month. So be looking out for that. If you want to join the Patreon, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Yeah. And just to let people know too, like really the reason that we went on a big hiatus is is not just because we got busy and we definitely didn't have any desire to do it, but we kind of, our team fell apart. We had an editor and a producer and they kind of just ghosted us and disappeared on us. And we didn't have enough expendable funds to like hire somebody else because we had a, a kind of deal worked out with them. And um, they were there for a little while to, to do that and then they kind of disappeared on us so we got left alone and we didn't have time individually to be editing things and then we did get busy and so it was like fuck well, we were looking for a new producer but um, my partner has stepped in after a lovely trip to the states where I got to hang out with Troy in person for the first time in six years Damn. my partner she could see how much joy this podcast brought us and she was like you know what <laughs> I'll step in and I'll edit it for you guys because she didn't know that that's why we stopped. And I was like, yeah, it was just – she's like, that's it? She's like, that's the reason? She's like, fuck, I'll do it. I was like, no. Nah. And she's like, yeah, no, really? I was like, really? She's like, yeah. I was like, okay. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's what happened. Um, so I would say we have free labor, but um, I'm going to make sure I do some extra cooking and, and cook some extra meals for you, baby. So Because uh, she's listening to this right now editing it. So – um, that's that's what I can offer in return is some extra tasty dinners. There you go, an everyday example that acts as a defeater for uh, the idea of surplus value being necessarily exploitative. 
That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're back for all intents and purposes, and I really do think that we are going to be um, consistent with this. So as much as we can moving forward, obviously there are going to be weeks here and there, 52 weeks in a year. I can't guarantee we're going to have one a week, but uh, I, I'd be willing to bet you we'll be up in the 30-plus range um, for episodes over the next uh, year if, if we go by calendar years. But what is time anyway, right, Troy? We don't do metaphysics, although I like to dabble in metaphysics, but you've you've moved away from that world in recent years. Um, we don't explicitly do metaphysics, but only implicitly. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Everybody does it implicitly, whether they like to admit it or not. Um, <laughs> but, uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about what we're going to be discussing today, yeah, dude? Yeah, so this was uh, your deal, right? You got really interested in John Muir and wanted to talk about him, right? You want to... Do you want to say anything about how that came about, or do you want to save that for the beginning yeah. of the main segment? Yeah, so, I've, I mean, I've known both of us are from Southern California, and being from Southern California, we're really close to the Sierra Mountain Range, right, the Sierra Nevada Mountain Range. So John Muir is somebody I think that probably both of us just grew up at least having some sort of awareness of the name, right? And for me, and then, of course, the Sierra, Sierra Club, right, is something that I'm sure that both of us have had some sort of knowledge of, which is a big preservation society. And they've moved more recently in recent years to expand the circle of their their um, motivations to also include, like, racial justice and economic justice and things like that, which for them relates to preservation and um, connecting back with nature and things like that as well, which we'll get into. But um, – I, I kind of more in my in my like formative thinking years, I had a, a, a mentor, a philosophical mentor. Do you remember Jeff Steele? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so Jeff Steele, he's actually a professor. I don't know where he's at at the moment of philosophy, though. And he specializes in like medieval philosophy. The SCOTUS, I think, it was his big was his big like expert area of expertise, but Scotus and Aquinas and et cetera, et cetera. But he's also like a backcountry, crazy, intense snowboarder. One of those dudes that would jump out of helicopters and um, do like backcountry split boarding and snowboarding. And um, I hung out with him one time. His parents had a cabin in the Sierras and I hung out with him um, on one trip and we built like an igloo in the backcountry. And, you know, it, like he's like fucking, he lives the, the John Muir dream. But he was obsessed with Muir and that whole idea of, you know, the mountains are calling, I must go. He absolutely, like there's even photos of him on his Instagram of it's like it's him, his wife and his like infant and they're like backcountry snowboarding while his infant is strapped to him and there's like they're just like in the wilderness <laughs> like it's fucking like he lives that right so um but he was like a mentor of mine and he loves nature philosophy he loves um this idea that god is in nature sort of thing now he comes at it from a much more protestant evangelical perspective maybe a dualist perspective than i think muir does and, and that either of us would ever consider but there's something interesting at least in kind of attuning ourselves to the common influence which was Muir and his love for the the Sierra Nevada mountain range and when I was back in the states most recently that love got reignited because my partner and I we got to spend a few nights in my favorite place in the entire world um, just next to the Yosemite Valley in the June Lake Loop and the Mammoth Lakes uh, region which I don't know if, if anyone out there is familiar with California uh, California has this amazing 
mountain range that is filled with all of these different valleys and, and things like that. And this area, Yosemite, is one of the most notable. But right next to it is an area where I grew up going hiking and fishing in the summer and then, you know, snowboarding and skiing in the winter, especially as I got to be a little bit older with friends and things like that. So I grew up really visiting the Sierras. And so I, it just, when I, and I've always said that it's my favorite place in the world and it is my favorite place in the world. Mm. So I went back there and it just, I had this reignited passion and John Muir is everywhere when you're up in that area, um, from like the John Muir trail to just references to him. And I was like, I'm going to fucking, when I get back to Sydney, I'm going to become like a John Muir scholar. <laughs> just because I felt the call of the mountains. And so I was like, Troy, let's talk about environmental philosophy and let's talk about John Muir. And I know you've studied this, especially more recently, with some really great philosophers of um, nature. Uh, Didn't you, were you teaching a class on this as well? I can't remember. So I figured it would be great for us to maybe jump into. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely didn't teach a class um, on it. Although, I mean, I Environmental ethics, though. Wasn't it environmental ethics? Yeah, I I mean, I took an environmental ethics class uh, a number of years ago. Um, Oh, okay. Yeah, and so I became familiar with some of this stuff. It's definitely not my area, my main area, but, you know, in teaching ethics and applied ethics especially, you end up usually doing a a module on environmental ethics. So, yeah, it's something that I'm interested in, and certainly one of the more uh, contemporary and relevant aspects of, of ethics right now. Yeah, and it's just a big hot-button issue with climate breakdown in everybody's minds and the debates surrounding it and, like, degrowth versus, you know, ethical types of Green New Deals and things like that, these debates that are happening. And I think a lot of it is based around kind of um, misunderstandings or unassumed understandings of, like, metaphysical presuppositions about what nature is and what is our connection and yada, yada, yada. And then, of course, ethical ideas as well. So... I just figured it'd be a great chat for us to have, and it's something that is always in like the background of my thoughts. So, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, dude? Yeah, sounds good. Sick. But first, all of my babbling aside, we've got to start off the episode the way we are supposed to start off the episode. It's been a long fucking time that you've not been able to clean out those pipes, Troy. It's time to <laughs> shed yourself of old dirty skin and, you know, clean clean the system and do a full-on colonoscopy. Or is that not a colonoscopy? What's it called? A colon cleanse? You know? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a colonoscopy, right? Is it? I thought a colonoscopy was where they do the scope and they scope you. Oscopy. Yeah. That's oh. where they, they stick the scope up there. But anyway, a colon yeah, cleanse. What is I don't... <laughs> there is a name for it. I almost... I almost thought you forgot about the shitty minute. You just got started talking about Muir, and I thought, okay, we're jumping right into the main segment. I got excited. I was trying to do like a preamble, (laughs) and the preamble turned into some like more substantial thoughts. But no, dude, I could never forget about the shitty minute. We have to do the shitty minute. It's it's what starts the show. So, Troy, you have the baton. Um, What's been chapping your hide or bugging you over the last however many months it's been? The shitty minute floor is yours. So... The NBA season started last week, and <laughs> yeah. as, as you know, it's my Christmas, right? This is the best time of the year. Um, I mean, like, you know, the, the playoffs and the finals are actually the best, but I'd probably get more excited about the beginning of the season because I haven't had it 
for several months, you know? And that's when all the hopes um, and all of the desires and all, you get to, like, fabricate all of the imaginational, like, possibilities, right? Of what could be and stuff like that. And you get to see the yeah, new team assembled and, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's possibility. It's, it's all youth, potential. Man. It's springtime. It. It's springtime, you know? For you, maybe. <laughs> well, I, well liter- literally it is, but I, yes, but also in, in the basketball sense, you know, there's new life. There's new flowers blooming and there's hope. Okay, you mean okay, I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, metaphorically. So <laughs> in that context, I've been thinking, you know, there's this rising betting culture within the within oh. be- sports generally speaking, right? Um the NBA, I know just recently as of I think last year, officially um sort of legalized or made a bunch of deals with uh, online sports betting companies and Every game you watch, every podcast you listen to, every website you go on just to check stats or whatever, you're seeing betting lines, you're seeing people discussing the betting lines, um, talking about parlays and stuff like that. And so, you know, if if anyone's following sports at all, you've known this is a, I'm I'm assuming it's the same in like the NFL and stuff too recently, right? Or did that Mm. happen beforehand? Do you, do you know? Um. But it's kind of like an outgrowth of fantasy football, which has always been huge, right? And people could bet, yeah. you know, you, you pay for your fantasy football league. But but yeah, no, the, the, the sports betting thing has really seeped into football as well, especially, um, yeah, yeah, like, I, I feel like football is one of those ones that is really kind of breeds the, the sports betting ground, more so even than like NBA or NHL. But it, it yeah. In my mind, I don't know if that narrative is right, but in my genealogy, like it started with football, at least in the States. Yeah, it's probably a, a good connection there to make with the point that I'm going to try to make, but I don't know enough about football or football culture to really have a say in that. Um, and so I, I really hate it. And I have this kind of immediate um, gag reflex at the very idea of uh, betting on on basketball. Um, and it, you know, it reminds me, there, there seems to be this, several different sort of instantiations of this um, underlying issue or phenomenon, I think, that comes out in all these ways, one of which is the sports betting thing. I think another is like kind of the the the, the like woke, scold, anti-sports person who thinks people <laughs> who enjoy sports are like Neanderthals, basically, you know? And so they'll say stuff like um, athletic competition is, is basically just war by other means, you know, um, mm. as a way of denigrating it and saying like, that it's it's sort of Neanderthalish, it's sort of um, uh, you know not cultured or civilized or whatever, right? As if like, I mean, whenever someone says something like that, I'm always like, so it's war without the bad parts. <laughs> that sounds wonderful, actually. Um, but so that you wouldn't imagine the same person um, saying something like that—that that sports is just war by other means. And then the you know person who's really into sports because they're doing the sports betting thing and like they're obsessed with it, right? Those seem like opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm. And I think it's actually just different instantiations of the same underlying phenomenon. And that underlying phenomenon is basically just an inability to appreciate the beauty and value that's found in athletic competition. Mm. I think the the woke school person doesn't understand or appreciate the athletic or the aesthetic. Um, qualities and features of sports and that's fine you don't like have to spend your time with that or have to um dedicate attention to it but then you know this person's not just um refusing to engage in in the aesthetic appreciation they're like denigrating or saying that it's somehow uncivilized right 
Yeah. Um, so it's more ignorance in that aspect. And then on the sports betting side, even though this person's obsessed with sports, usually who's like um, really into sports betting, I think it's, it's basically like a way for someone to get a quick fix in relation to mm. their love of sports without actually engaging with the kind of, it's not even hard work, with the work of appreciating something, right? Work not in the sense of like drudgery, but work in the sense of you have to provide some effort and it has to happen over a longer period of time. And it's like a, it's mm. like an, a dialectical activity you come back to over and over again and it enhances its value the more that you engage in it, right? Uh, it's sort of like, it's basically porn, right? It's, I don't want to mm, engage mm, in, mm. in the, porn in the generic sense, the non-sexualized generic sense of like, I, I don't want to engage in the um, in the sort of effort and work and process that it takes to engage in actual this actual activity. I want to just get the quick fix and be done, right? Because I got I got shit to do or whatever. I just want the immediate hedonic um, euphoria, right? And not to do all the work that usually comes with getting that at the end. Yeah. And that that all that stuff is just like a a really bizarre inverted notion of like what makes activities that we engage in valuable in the first place, right? As if like we do activities to get pleasure rather than pleasure being a signal that we're doing an activity that we find to be valuable, right? Mm. Um, uh, and that's just an underlying idea that I think is permeates our culture. Yeah. And it's really sad, I think, to see one of the last vestiges of, I mean, obviously sports is in America has been like, integrated with capitalism from the beginning, obviously. I'm not saying in any sense that it's like anti-capitalist or whatever, but it is a site um, where you can engage in appreciation without always having to like spend a shitload of money, right? Obviously, if you're going to games and stuff, you're spending a shitload of money. Um, but if you're just sort of, in, you can go to the park and play basketball and it's basically free, right? That's right. So um, it's just... I'm not saying like it's evil or bad or whatever to engage in sports betting. Like I'm it's, I'm sure it's fun. It's kind of gamifying it in a certain way. And that can sometimes be fun independently. And, you know, there's certain things in my life that I gamify because it's more fun that way or whatever. But I do think that it kind of means, it means that there's going to be a loss there of the actual aesthetic appreciation. And that doesn't mean you like watch when I watch basketball that I'm like, you know, uh, doing philosophy while I'm watching basketball. Like I'm enjoying you know, guys running fast and jumping high and dunking and blocking shots just like everybody else, right? <laughs> but that kind of appreciation is independent of like this quick fix, hedonic um, pleasure seeking, right? Mm. Uh, as if like the pleasure itself is the goal and not the appreciation of the thing independently uh, of that. So yeah, I just want to encourage anybody out there, if you're into sports, if you like betting, that's totally fine. Not scolding you or whatever, but like, let's get back to appreciating the thing for its intrinsic features you know fuck yeah i think it's just better that way yeah i mean but so there's this this new campaign i don't know if you've seen it on espn that says to know hockey is to love hockey have you been seeing those out there i've been seeing it here no and they're trying to really push viewers because viewership for the nhl is is like bad right of the four main sports it used to be much more popular in the states and now it's just not nearly as as high in its ratings, like the NFL is the big juggernaut, and then the NBA, and then even baseball ratings are plummeting, right? Which is why they've had to speed up the game and and all kinds of other things with like the uh, pitch clock. And so, but yeah. the NHL is even lower, and it's partly because it's not it's not a sport. It 
it's viewed as like a, a sport simply for one demographic of people, you know, namely like middle class. And it's not wrong, but middle class or upper middle class white people. And it, and it is in a lot mm. of ways. But um, there's also a sense in which the sport itself is fucking awesome. It's fast and it's exciting and um, it's, it's aggressive. And so people who are into those types of, of contact sports, you would think that if they only had an education in it or if they could learn to appreciate it, then maybe they would tune into it more. And I think that's what they're trying to do. I mean, obviously they have their own sort of nefarious profit, uh, per- profit-seeking purposes as well. But there is something about like to know X is to learn to love it. And I feel like with the sports betting stuff, and I've noticed this for a long time, is you get a lot of these like noobs that just talk so much shit about football and stuff like that because they've got fantasy teams and it's like but it, it just feels so exploitative and like disengaged from actually caring about the rules of the game and the ins and outs of the technique and the strategy and and the chess game that's occurring and stuff like that because you just reduce it to simple abstractions so that you can get that immediate like you were talking about that pleasure rush and I don't know. I've never, I've never really been a big fan of fantasy sports, and I don't often tell people why. But a lot of people will ask me, "Oh, do you do fantasy football?" And I'm like, "Nah, I did in the past, and I tried it a little bit, and then I just..." And usually I say something like, "Ah, but I never stick with it." Yada yada yada. And and that's part of it. It's time consuming, but it's also because it doesn't do it for me. Because what really does it for me is literally watching how a team is going to respond to another team's response to the other team's response in uh, you know ad infinitum from this moment to this moment to this moment or this play to this play to this play and seeing that sequence play out it's that agonism that i find to be so fucking amazing about sports and um, and i just feel like fantasy sports and especially betting it really detaches you from that and it's like it's kind of a form of financial alienation i think it's like it's an act of alienation through technological financial mechanisms. And I think it's just another instance of a certain cultural trend that's creating further and further alienation that kind of fits with whole Marx's whole everything that's solid melts into air, right? It's it's this idea of the solidity of the agonism of like rooting for a team and caring for a team or caring about the rules or or a, the, uh, of the of the sequence of events that's occurring because I'm not a big fanboy. Um, for like a side usually for me it's more about like the sport the game the competition the the individuals the coaching that's what I really get off on right and and you Mm. lose a lot of that stuff you lose a lot of that stuff in the kind of maelstrom of just you know give me what I want so that I can feel better and it just it feels it's like this this it's the I, I don't know it feels like it's coming from a place of like simple selfish extraction for my purposes not saying that there there isn't some sort of justification or maybe not justification but an an understanding and an explanation of why that is necessary in a world that is so fucking shitty but it just it it makes me feel like it's just an it it kind of fits into the marxian critique you know where it's like okay so it's just a placating of dissatisfaction rather than actually trying to find ways to truly find satisfaction in the thing you know but i don't know yeah if that resonates with you yeah i mean i think you're right to to point out the alienation aspect right It's, it's actually hijacking your own psychology right? Like taking a thing and morphing it, an activity that's that's happening external to you, right? And morphing it in such a way and formalizing it in such a way that you can get more immediate pleasure out of it, right? Which isn't always necessarily wrong, right? Just because I'm using the words like manipulation and, and hijacking, those, those are like loaded terms, right? Um, but when the thing that you're doing that to has its own inherent value, then it becomes 
potentially problematic, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I've ever talked to you about uh, the philosopher C.T. Nguyen. No. I'd love to read something of his with you. He has this notion of value capture, um, and he talks about how, uh, especially in contexts where we gamify things, if the thing that we're gamifying has um, its own intrinsic or inherent values to it, then the act of uh, the process of gamifying actually ca- like captures those values and replaces them with something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, and he, he applies it specifically to social media. And the fact that uh, discourse, um, in, in any context where discourse is gamified, you're going to have this phenomenon of value capture where the values that are part of discourse, like knowledge and conversation and learning and um, engaging in, you know, inherently valuable uh, dialogue with other people, all that and community organizing and stuff like that, all those things give, get captured and replaced with other values like, um, you know, going viral or uh, building your follower account or whatever it is, right? Um, mm. the, I think that same sort of parallel process is happening with, with sports betting and other things too surrounding um, appreciation of sports in that we're sort of the, the values that are inherent to the thing, like appreciating excellence for its own sake gets replaced because it's that's too long of a process. We want a shorter, quicker return mm. on things. And it gets replaced by, you know, the the pleasure of like not – Oh, that was a you know a beautiful play that just happened on the court, but instead, oh, that's going to achieve my parlay, right? That's right, yeah. Um, and it's hard to have both of those things, right? One's quicker and more immediate, and that takes less effort, and so that means it's going to end up replacing the thing that takes more effort. Do you think that in this this process of value capture, that there's actually a couple of activities of like reduction abstraction, and then like an extreme type of utilitarianism? where you basically take the quality of something, you give it new meaning, you reinscribe it with different meanings or values, um, then you create that abstraction, and then you quantify that abstraction, and then you can use that abstraction for whatever your like, psychological, or then, of course, you know, the, the platforms can use it for their economic benefits. And, and then, of course, there's a political economy here that, that probably needs to come in here that, that would kind of give us more insight into kind of a, maybe a critical gesture towards what's going on and maybe what we could do to unravel it and, and rework it. But it, it makes me feel like that there's like an extreme utilitarianism, like down to like the bits of, 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 of existence and of reality, like taking the quality and just simply reducing it and ex- extracting it down to these tiny little little nodes that can be just like instantaneously shared and exchanged and consumed. And, and I don't know, I just know that utilitarianism has been one of your big, big kind of like bete noirs for, for a while, right? Um, that you've been, that you, what is it, utilitarianism? That there's like the, the triumvirate. the philosophy of capitalism. <laughs> yeah, what's the triumvirate? It's utilitarianism, something and something. Oh, empiricism, utilitarianism, capitalism, yeah. Yeah, there you go, yeah. But yeah, I mean, th- I think that's, exa- that's exactly right, is that yeah, yeah. utilitarianism is the moral philosophy of capitalism because it takes values and it reduces it, um, reduces in the sense of, or, or quantifies first, reduces and then replaces those values. Like that process, that's what utilitarianism does. Like it's the fucking thing. John Carpenter's the thing, right? It takes over the thing and then uh, reduces mm. it um, and then erases it or replaces it. 
and then you don't have the value anymore and then you're left alien that's the that's the like process of alienation that occurs yeah well i feel like this is going to be a fucking subject that we return to throughout this episode because i feel like in a lot of ways this is exactly john muir's critique of industrial society um matter of fact talking about segue i'm going to read this little quote from i sent you this talk do it um, but it's not from Muir himself. I have I have some other ones that we could probably, but this is from somebody commenting on Muir, and he says that so Muir's sort of critique of um, the the growth of American industrial capitalism, which has led to this 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 vast storehouse of American economic wealth. Um, he, he basically says that what Muir uh, would critique people for is that they sought beautiful scenery to adorn their lives as a therapy to soothe the cares and nervous prostration brought on by their intense work habits. And so there was this need in, according to this this guy, and I'll, I'll say what his name is, and um, I'll mention that. Let me just scroll up to the top. Uh, his name is Donald Worster, and it's from this little essay called John Muir and the Modern Passion for Nature. And he basically argues that there was this like intense uh, rush towards going back to nature and, and, and like going for walks out in nature. This real, as an old friend of mine who was an ecological philosopher used to say, this like middle-class fantasy to get back to nature. And I think that fits here. Because they're trying to adorn themselves um, with something from without, right? And and in the pursuit of that, they're also trying to kind of distract themselves in escapism from the pressures that you get from toiling under an economic system that that exploits you. And I think that there's a there's a I think that that's a really kind of lovely way of of both critiquing but also understanding like the pull, right? And then. And then, and then maybe you can get at something a little bit richer from that, which I think is what John Muir ultimately wanted, was a richer connection with nature that wasn't just simple escapism. It wasn't something that you put on to adorn yourself so that you could, you know, like with conspicuous consumption, that you could tell all your other rich friends that, oh my God, I vacation five times a year in Stog or whatever it is. Um, and... Uh, you know, and, and I spend this time and we have our cabin in the mountains or whatever. And then it may be even more so for contemporary culture. Oh, you take photographs of everywhere you go and you put it on social media so that you can adorn yourself with these commodities, which is which is no different to me ontologically from Veblen's critique of conspicuous consumption when the wealthy people would collect art, right? It's just now it's just much more democratized. It's, um, it's just much more accessible that you can adorn yourselves with like the riches of uh, of media imagery, right? And it creates this competition of who has more photos or better for photos or, or more consistent, um, the, the illusion that there's a more consistent experience of your ability to adorn yourself with these things. And um, I think from your, the, the, the vacuousness of that is something that we need to call out and then maybe call attention to what, what it was that he is there something we can learn from his desire to really go to the mountains and like like struggle with nature and sit and pause and there's this quote that he says or something and I can't remember the exact quote but John Muir says like come here amongst the trees and there you will find rest which I cannot help but think that that is like an inversion of the kind of idea of coming to God and finding rest in God right um for for him, that's where he found it. It was in the 
intense and immense and sublime overwhelm of being out in nature, in the wild, um, that really gave him that hope for respite and true peace. And I think that that's maybe for him, that's like the salve. And I wonder if there's a way that we can kind of think about that. But that was that was my kind of attempt at a segue. And, and I don't know, but what are your thoughts on that? No, yeah, that's, that's really good. I, I like, I'd see the connection now between um, the sort of uh, value-based vacuousness of like uh, sports betting culture and the sort of tendency to adorn yourself with nature and sort of miss out on the actual um, activity of appreciating nature for its own intrinsic qualities and not for, you know, purely means and what, what can it do for me kind of a thing or how can it fit into my narrow little um, view. And that's what really what's, what's sort of um, off-putting about someone who does that, right, is that they're sort of missing out on something really important. Like they're, they're it's not necessarily a, a moral problem, although it can be in certain issues, right? But it's more just like, it's it's sort of a sort of a misfire, right? In the sense of mm. you're you're taking this thing that has it these you know incredible qualities that should leave you in awe and wonder, and you're like using it as a, as a mere adornment, um, which just mm. loses out on all yes. those things. It's kind of mere like mere adornment in an important yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that you know that makes me wonder. Like, so do you remember? This is going to be a, a weird. Uh, tangent but it's gonna make sense i promise um do you remember back in the evangelical days when uh when evangelicals would describe heaven they would rarely ever describe any actual activity right but instead Uh, would just say something like you're so worship god forever and what 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 worship is an activity right as far as we know and so singing god's praises and yeah, yeah. I mean, is it even singing, right? Like, I guess the one thing they would mention is like singing, right? But then it's more just like you're just kind of overwhelmed with God's presence for eternity. And so you don't really need to do anything. I think it's I just they, it's, people, it's like an eternal orgasm. You're just like walking around just, just Well, that, that, That's the thing, right? Is the, the very idea of an eternal orgasm is incoherent because <laughs> it, it wouldn't it would no longer like orgasm is like, you know, pure pleasure or whatever. If you had that forever, it would no longer mean anything. It's only in, in contrast to, you know, uh, the before and the after that that has that sort of immense power. Um, and so people would often criticize this notion and say like evangelicals like have no concept of, of heaven that would make you want to go there. It sounds boring as hell, right? <laughs> um, no pun intended. Um, hell at least sounds fun. Like you're, you're getting tortured. That's something like something's happening. There's a this variation. There, right? <laughs> yeah. There's change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's something happening there. It seems like you can be tortured in different ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, at least you can look forward to the, 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 the less torture in between the phases of torture. Right. Well, like the different creative ways that you're being tortured. Right. That's something you can appreciate <laughs> about the, uh, like, oh, I, the they process. ripped out my tongue yesterday, but tomorrow they're pulling on my <laughs> genitals. I have, it's going to be inch. We'll see how I can deal with that. And there's always a little yeah, pleasure. Like mixed with pain as well so they got they got this new invention for delivering even more heat to my (laughs) genitals right to burn them so um yeah so you know i always thought um i understood the critique right because it it's true that the way that evangelicals describe heaven oftentimes is is not maybe in every case but oftentimes is very lacking in an understanding of like what makes activities valuable um but i also felt like you know what we're missing here really is this concept of appreciation. Like appreciation is an activity, 
right? Mm-hmm. When you listen to music and you're just listening, you're appreciating, right? And you're like, it's work. It's active. It's not passive. Um, your main engagement with art is appreciating if you're not creating it, right? In fact, appreciation is just the other side of creation because anything created needs to then be appreciated, right? Mm. Um, and the creator of the, you know, the art piece itself gets something out of other people appreciating it, right? Like the what Hegel calls recognition. So I always feel like that's the that's this like genre or category of, act, of activities that are just kind of moved off to the side and not analyzed very well, this act of appreciating. And I was struck when I was reading, so we should mention um, that we read, one of the pieces we read for today was John Muir's uh, Treasures of the Yosemite. Mm. And I was struck by this essay. It's basically Muir, I guess in his head, walking through Yosemite Valley Mm. and just describing everything, right? Um, Mm. And one thing I was wondering is, one thing I wanted to ask you, and you can... um, uh, answer this later if you want, or if you have an idea about it, is how he remembered all this, or like if he just took notes while he was walking around and then formed the essay afterwards, because it's like a lot. Of Apparently, he right? was a, a really vociferous journaler. So yeah, that, that like, tracks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I mean, it's not just it's not just like vague details. It's like this stream is 300 feet away from that one. And on this day, the rains did this and then this fell over and that happened. And I'm sure there's some mythologizing that's happening, of course, as well, because it's filled with Mm. like poetic language. But he also has numbers and statistics and heights of things. And this, you know, the three brothers are 3,300 feet high and El Cap is this feet high. And, you know, so he like, there's also some specifics there as well. So I'm pretty sure he would have taken detailed notes while he was out there. And and he also spent a shitload of time there, you know? Yeah, and, and not just detailed notes, but like details, um, like really analytical details of the shapes of all these objects, right? Um, yeah. So not just something, especially in the day when you couldn't rely upon, you know, uh, photographs and stuff like that. Um, pretty amazing. But it struck me in reading all this that he's basically just, he's doing this thing this act of appreciating throughout this whole essay. Like you can imagine somebody writing this essay today or like a version of this essay today. And I bet you there'd be a lot more focus on like the person's inner life and their feelings and doing like their own internal phenomenology or analysis Mm. of their own internal phenomenology. Right. Which is fine. Those things are all like interesting and important. Right. But it's, it's kind of narcissistic. Right. Um, and it's not that Muir sort of ignores himself in, in the essay or doesn't talk about how he feels and stuff, but that's definitely not the the primary um, analysand, right? The thing he's actually analyzing is Yosemite itself, and he's describing it and telling you about its beauty and actually appreciating the beauty as he's doing the process of, I think, both thinking and writing, right? So the yeah. whole like aesthetic factor the 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 cognitive like the thinking factor right and then also the writing and delivering to other people that whole long process which took you know many many years um that's all one big act of appreciating nature and it's like man if you were the kind of person who just didn't have that and so you you find yourself like using nature to as mere adornments for yourself right like this is how you get out of that and it made me think this is probably Mm. why this essay is so was so uh, famous and popular it was like, I can imagine young people reading this and just being like, Oh shit, this is awesome. I've never mm. thought about this before. 
and it just strikes you immediately without even really reflecting too much on it, right? That, oh, this is like an incredible activity that I want to be a part of. And that's such a beautiful way to kind of evangelize the value of something, I feel like. Yes. Is to is to think about it and appreciate it and write about it in a way that 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 sort of manifests this act of appreciation. Dude, I just thought that was such a beautiful thing. We were we were in an apologetics class when we were at our undergrad institution and I remember we were talking about like theories of apologetics. And you know how there's always like some some desire to create like a new approach to maybe old, you know, like evidentialism versus presuppositionalism or whatever, yada, 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 right? And I remember I thought I had this brilliant idea and I was like, but like when you're describing the beauty of the sun, I don't want to be the thing that is the target of the person's interest. I want to just point to the fucking beauty of the sun and be like, that's the beauty of the thing and describe it and it's most triumphant and and sublime and beauteous ways so that people's attention is is directed to that so they can feel that so they can see that so they can turn their attention to that so they can encounter that and i think there's something in this that he's basically he's like an apologist for the divine that is the woods the divine that is the wild and he does it in such a way that he he moves out of the way like it's not about him, like you were just saying, because he's trying to describe the radical other. Like, don't you think that's what he's trying to describe here? Like, I keep thinking of Byung-Chul Han here, who's coming back, and he's, he's a philosopher that has been really influential in me over the last handful of years. But he talks about how in our society now, what you get is kind of the pornification of society, which is that everything is ultimately on display all the time, and that there's no hiddenness, there's no seduction, because everything is always easily, easily presented and then therefore consumable. And also that it's described by or defined by like pure positivity. There's no negativity. There's no encounter with anything that would surprise or shock or be other because everything is always already consumable. It's always already something that you can adorn yourself with or that you can take on or that you can use, right? Whereas the nature, the world that Muir describes, and he says this explicitly in other essays too, where he he derides industrial modern culture, capitalist culture, for its reduction of nature to usefulness, right? Like that, like he mm-hmm. just talks about it in in this essay as well, like the the valleys that um you know that are are charred down, and you've got these these uh, agrarian farmers that are just going to mow down these things all for the pursuits of profit and their use of this rather than just maybe appreciation requires rather than letting the other be the other so that you can have that encounter with otherness and maybe that's what appreciation requires is is not the rush to enclose which i do think is a I mean, I've got a, a book coming out that I'm working on um, that is like the culmination of some research that I've been doing and and the kind of final prompts in my book. I, I have these, these uh, theses that I level and one of them has been called by some reviewers of it is like a new theory of capitalism where I talk about capitalism as being essentially an activity of inscription, enclosure, and quantification. Right, which seems maybe intuitive, but to formalize it in that way is really helpful for me as like a barometer because you basically give new meaning to the thing, like we were just talking about earlier, something that is qualitatively unique in itself, and you give new meaning, and it's now a resource to be consumed. Then you enclose it, and you privatize it, and you can do that in various different ways with fences, or you can do that with contracts, <laughs> and you can say, therefore, it's now mine, um, and then you quantify it, and then once you do that, then you can engage with exchange, and you can put it on the market. Um, 
But there seems to be something that Muir is bemoaning about the tendency towards that with with his experience of modern industrial capitalism, which was trying to do that, which was trying to take this thing that was radically other and take the otherness away from it, understand it as something that was purely used for industrial purposes, then you privatize it by owning it, by contracting it out to you, and then by saying it's yours and, and enclosing it in various ways. And then you can quantify it and you can turn this thing that maybe is essentially non-quantifiable and you say, okay, that land is worth X amount of value because we can turn it into X products for X profit. And I just can't help but wonder if that's the tendency that can be overcome by reattuning, or at least maybe in Muir's mind, and maybe there's something we can learn from this, by reattuning to the otherness of the qualities of things, and then you can have an appreciation for them. But you have to, you have to let them be other. And the problem is, is it's terrifying and it's scary. And I think this goes back to like the sports betting and fantasy sports and all this other stuff. Is is you have to let the thing be wild. You have to not master it. You have to not have a desire to know it in the sense of control. But but then once you get into this tendency of, of controlling, knowing, mastering, quantifying, inscribing, using, then what you do is, is it becomes addictive and you need to do that with everything because then the other becomes too scary for you and you can't just let the other be the other. And so I understand the tendency to need to want to to have an answer for everything or to have a way to consume everything or to have a way to digest everything immediately as like the first as the first response right and and I understand that need but I also wonder if that doesn't like create a, a faster and more intense tendency towards the need to master and control everything all the time as the first instant encounter with anything and I think that that is a dangerous tendency yeah, and I mean, if if you want any evidence of the fact that Muir is is not thinking about at least in this essay, he's not thinking about nature purely in terms of uh, usefulness or even like hedonic usefulness, like getting getting pleasure out of it and then sort of consuming it and using it up. Let alone like the the literal adornments. At the very end of the essay, he talks about this um, waterfall flood. And he talks about like the the tumble and the throbbing together as one of this flood. And he basically talks about it as being sublime. And he says the last line is, what a psalm was that? Yeah. Right? It's a beautiful sort of piece of art. But it's destructive. Terrifying. It's disastrous. It's terrifying. Yeah. Right? So that means like appreciating even the sublime aspects that are not attuned towards human flourishing necessarily. Or even mm. just, you know. Um, flourishing of of anything, it could be even be destructive, right? And there's a there's a tension there, I think, because the other piece you sent me um, that wasn't by Mir, I forget the author's name, that was sort of giving a, a biography of Mir, talked about how maybe he lost some of this when he was uh, later in his life and started thinking only about the sort of um, quote unquote beautiful aspects of nature. And by that, I think he meant like the kinds of things you can sell to people mm. um, that are nice or that are like gratifying or something and not these sort of terrifying aspects maybe in his in his youth he hadn't he was more well attuned to that but that seems to have come if that is the the sort of tragic narrative of uh or the somewhat tragic narrative of his life and his career that seems to come from the fact that he became more and more in, in integrated with the capitalist dynamics of the late 19th century right and needing to sort of um satisfy various uh you know 
financial figures and politicians and and sort of hanging out more with um with wealthy people and not being in nature as often as he was in and game. needing to play the game of preservation which is what he sought to do in those later years to do that mm-hmm. you had to like hang out with industrialists and he literally there's this famous camping trip that he and teddy roosevelt took through yosemite that was really important for the preservation of yosemite and turning it into a national park right so there's there's like a pragmatic and practical benefit and value to what he did. But at the same time, maybe he did at what cost, maybe he did lose a little bit of that kind of just terrifying, like, um, you know, holy fool, uh, monastic encounter and, and relationship with, with, with the wild. It's kind of a recapitulation of the environmental movement writ large, right? In that if you talk to anybody who would consider themselves an environmentalist, right? If you ask them to describe why they care, why they got into this in the first place. They're always going to have something like Muir's, yeah. I just love it, right? I yeah, appreciate yeah, yeah. the thing, right? It's yeah, not yeah. because it's useful. Who cares what's useful, right? In fact, the fact that it's not useful actually is part of the allure, right? It's terrifying and it requires effort and it defeat, nature defeats me oftentimes when I'm trying to appreciate it. Um, but then when they have to sell it to the public, they can't do that because they it's just assumed that the public is not going to respond to that sort of message. And so you have to sell it as like, well, here's how it's actually beneficial to other things. Here's how it's instrumentally useful and valuable and whatever, right? And like, I get that. I totally get that. Um, and that happens a lot of times in politics. Sometimes you just have to like couch things in such a way to get the biggest, you know, biggest conglomerate of people to, you know, be a coalition together to get the thing that is good in the end. But at the same time, I wonder if sometimes at least that's done in a way that sort of doesn't acknowledge that there's a reason why someone like Muir is so famous and influential, right? Um, and me, a part of it's the, the the political stuff later in his life, but also a big part of it that's not in competition with that is just like the evangelistic attitude, right? Like, look at this thing, really appreciate it. There's this mm. kind of assumption in, I think, in American uh, discourse that like of all the things out there, Nature, appreciation of nature is just one of those things that it's just in some people and not in others, right? And so if you have someone who devotes their entire life to appreciating nature and then someone else who just literally couldn't give two shits and thinks that that's, that that's kind of insane uh, hmm. and just wants to, you know, cut down every tree for the sake of uh, building more homes or whatever because that's its only instrumental use that, that matters, then that's just like inborn. And so there's no way of sort of triangulating between those attitudes they're just you know natural attitudes or whatever and there's i mean of course there's going to be some sense of which there's there's truth to that but i mean most other things aren't that diametrically opposed right so what is it about nature that just seems like it's just an attitudinal thing um if people are uh attuned to love of nature versus not caring at all about it i don't know it just seems like it's 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 got to be when people are appreciating it, they're appreciating appreciating something about nature. It's not just like a natural thing that they were born with, and that um, you know, like their their pleasure radar goes off when they're close to nature or something like that. Like it's purely algorithmic, like that. Right. Um, I don't know. It did, that seems like a wrong attitude to take, and I and I wish more people would but devote more time to like the, the this mirror style kind of evangelism for the value of the thing like pointing at it and saying look at it right yeah and just encountering it but the more that we 
deaden our very capacity towards that type of attunement with the other, I think the more difficult it becomes to actually appreciate things in that way. And I think if there is a sort of monocultural tendency, I think it might be this, is that we are becoming less and less capable of that type of appreciation as a fundamental, not as like a bug, but as like a fundamental um, mechanism of the kind of postmodern, neoliberal, or techno-feudal, whatever the fuck, the, however you want to describe it, um, tendency of, of mass media culture that currently defines us. I think that it kind of operates in that way. And I think it's making us less and less capable of that type of encounter. You know? I don't know. Did, yeah, so, think, yeah, go ahead. Or just to, just, uh, to use the word deadened, right? That speaks to the fact yeah. that it's a stunting right? Yeah. It's not that either you have it or you don't, you have the, the gene or you don't for loving nature. No, it's that it's been like, it's been like ripped out of you by well, And John Muir had to learn culture. it. He wasn't born with it, right? Like he was yeah, born. Yeah, you had to develop it. I, that's right. So there is a, to learn hockey is to love hockey kind of thing going on here, you know? To learn nature Yeah, it requires development nature. and it can be stunted. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, um, it was interesting. So in this this talk that I sent to you by Donald Forster, the one that I mentioned earlier, it's called um, oh, I've got it real mm-hmm. quick here. Hold on one second. Let me just open up my my phone here. Um, it's by Donald Forster, and it's called John Muir. Uh, Donald Worster. I'm sorry, not Forster. Worster. W O R S T E R. Uh, John Muir and the Modern Passion for Nature. And he basically like proposes this as like a problem and he says oh you know evolutionary psychology is never going to be able to like give us the answers as much as it might try that like it's ingrained and like you know like we've evolved for this and some people are inclined towards this and some people are inclined towards that and yada 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 he says well maybe there's like actually a socio-political explanation for muir's attraction to nature and he he ascribes it to the burgeoning popularity and john muir's own fascination with democracy and how that relates to pantheism did you have a chance to read over that or have a think about that at all? Because I thought that was really I, I, interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, I, yeah, I did. And it's like, I mean, I, I don't doubt that that played a huge role, right? But I sometimes worry about these like historically determinist, historical determinist type explanations that can be just as reductive uh, as evolutionary psychology, right? Yeah. Because um, like it's not either it's not either historical development or evolutionary psychology. Like those are two right, of right. the most reductive explanatory frameworks that exist in like theory (laughs) yeah that's like one is like the historical materialist reduction uh of like kind of like just pure bland brute materialist marxists and one is like the other end of like evolutionary psychology that has its own kind of reductive explanation for everything yeah yeah and of course one's much worse than the other at least historical materialism explains things Evolutionary psychology isn't even explanatory. <laughs> it's not even an attempt. No, it's just dogmatism <laughs> at the end of the day because it's like this is the truth. Accept it or you're a fucking idiot because it's evolution, dummy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot we can say about how dumb evil psycho is. But anyway, the the point being, like, yeah, yeah, I, I have no doubt that the that the historical materialist um, explanation's got more going for it. Right? And there's some there's going to be some truth to that. But like ultimately, whatever the reasons. Now, historical reasons for Muir being in the place that he was and becoming the person that he did, ultimately, like, read the words on the page that he wrote. Like, this is what he's doing. He's appreciating things about nature. He's not, like, describing his feelings or even indirectly talking about um, his, you know, 
his political time or his historical time or um, or even like, you know, Freudian unconscious stuff happening in the background, whatever explanatory well, value those might have. That's what I was going to. That's what I was going to say. Like, I think the reason that I'm interested in what Worcester had to say was there was this, there's this psychoanalytic take that he doesn't spend too much time on, but that I'm fascinated by because I am always psychoanalyzing myself and my own like needs to rebel against hierarchy in the church and my dad and American imperialist ideology and yada, yada. And, and I kind of am like, so I think Worcester kind of intimates, if not explicitly says that that John Muir's love for nature comes from his rejection of his really strict Calvinist upbringing that his father beat into his head and all mm. the hierarchical, political, and sociopolitical and ethical uh, baggage that comes with that. And in his retreats to nature, what he encountered was like a liberation from that. He experienced radical democracy where everything is connected and then also pantheism where everything is connected and everything is like equal before the real. And so I'm reading this and then I also started thinking about Prozorov. And if people who've been around with us for a while, they'll remember we talked about you void universalism in the work of Sergei Prozorov and we've had him on to talk about like the Russia-Ukraine war. And I was thinking about like the void as being uh, – like the, the the kind of check-in that is that is the source of like uh, communitarianism right or communism that everything is is common before the real that everything is equal before the real and that there's radical freedom before the real because nothing is predetermined so there's like a radical contingency and Muir finds radical contingency in nature you know that there is this flux and this this interdependency but also this radical democratic ideal not representational democracy or republic democracy that kind of shit but like true radical equality before the wild before the void and so i was thinking of this as being like a real liberatory experience because he found something that would allow him to land in a new way of living and seeing and and be oriented in a different way beyond the kind of hierarchical protestant and and hierarchical and bureaucratic american ideals and your british ideals because he's born in scotland um that he kind of grew up inundated by and told that that was the right way of doing things so i don't know that's why that kind of that that connection between democracy and pantheism was interesting for me because it might also kind of intimate some of those more psychoanalytic desires or or um like interests uh, that would that would lead Muir to his appreciation for nature in the way that it that it was yeah and what i what i like about that that rationalization in terms of um his rejection of calvinism right is that you think about the three classic perfections, right? Truth, goodness, beauty. Um, which do you think is the priority for Calvinism? Truth. Undoubtedly, right? And what comes second? Goodness. And what doesn't matter at all? <laughs> beauty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they got that, they got that fucking backwards. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not sure about backwards, but I mean, the fact that Truth obviously is paramount, right? And goodness is like completely reductive to truth. Um, That's right. And then beauty matters not at all. In fact, it's if anything, it's an, it's the ultimate imperfection because beauty is like trying to distract you from truth, right? That's the, that's that suspicion that comes from original sin, right? Is that 
um, anything we think of as beautiful is basically just like our pleasure radar going off. It has that Calvinism has that same reductive, and that you've got to mistrust that because you know our exactly. mechanisms are are mistuned, and you can't trust any of your of your of your like internal alarm systems. And by thinking about appreciation of beauty as being purely a mechanism, an algorithmic mechanism like that, right, for badness, for bad stuff, right. It's, it's the same sort of um, reductive view that utilitarianism, capitalism thing we're talking about earlier has, right? If anything, Calvinism kind of either comes first or at the same time as, as that thing, even though it seems very opposite in certain ways, given that utilitarianism is obviously very secular. Um, you could even say it's a secularized version of Calvinism in some ways. Uh, but where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. So truth, beauty, goodness, right? So – it would make sense then if someone understood or saw the sort of poverty of Calvinism, they're often going to be, it's going to be because they're so well attuned to beauty and that that's just lacking in the world that they're inhabiting. So it makes perfect mm. sense then that they would run away from Calvinism and towards um, appreciation of beauty, almost as if it's the most fundamental of the perfections. And I, I don't agree with that, but it makes perfect sense why someone who was leaving Calvinism would think that, right? Because they're they're so sensitized to the lack of appreciation of beauty that it becomes like the most important thing to them. Yeah, and then freedom comes along with that because in in encountering the beautiful and appreciating that which is beautiful, there's also a sense that that you are released from the stranglehold of the control that stifles any appreciation for what could be deemed beautiful. And I think once you taste that freedom to be able to actually experience, then you want you want more. And and I think maybe that's where there's this liberatory sense, maybe that's where it comes from, right? Is like once you taste the release, once you taste the the goodness of being able to encounter things for what they are, then you want more of that. And then you want that for other people and for other things and for other systems. And and I think that there's a real kind of like socio-political ethic that can be built out of this. You know, not that it's perfect, but that there's stuff that can be learned from it. Yeah, exactly. That's right on. Hmm. Yeah. Um, was there anything else uh, from from your or like from the essays or is there any way to tie this into kind of more contemporary environmental ethics debates that like obviously you were taking that module when you were doing kind of coursework for the PhD? Is there anything that, that you can kind of throw in there that would either be like, like, a, like a wrench that you can throw in there to be like, ah, but that would help us to think productively? Or is there anything else that you can like buttress the conversation with? Well, I have a question for you. And this is, I yeah. mean, this might be like, you could talk about this for the rest of your life, but what do you think? I think you're more of a, a naturalist than I am. Like I have, I have a, a, you know, a tendency towards that, but it's, it's nowhere near as strong as I think it is for you. Um, you're probably more like mirror than I am. A good bit more like mirror than I am. I was just sitting this morning before we started recording. I was drinking a cup of coffee with my girl and we were sitting on our sofa and I was just watching a bird build its nest in our garden and I was enthralled. So, yeah. Yeah, that checks out. Um, so <laughs> I'm wondering then, as someone who was more sensitized to this, um, I, I come out of it a little bit more from a, from a distance, like a reflective analytical distance. Uh, although I've been to, you know, I climbed Half Dome, I've been to Yosemite, so I, I felt that at reading this, uh, all that stuff stirred in me as I was reading this essay. Um, what yeah. What is someone, 
appreciating when they appreciate nature. Mm. Yeah, and this is where I do wonder, I, I definitely think that there's probably like some sense of a universal answer and then also a myriad of particulars because I think that this is also a, um, you know, learning hockey is to love hockey kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So if you, like, so we just got back from a trip from from the States and spent some time with my family. And for people who listen, they know that my father's a pretty hyper-conservative evangelical Calvinist type, right? And there were conversations and, like, I remember, like, we picked up an acorn at one point, and my partner's Ozzy. She's never seen an American acorn before, <laughs> and she was looking at it, and she's like, oh, my God, it's so cute. And, you know, like, one of my 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 parents, I can't remember which one, was like, um, they were like, oh, yeah, like, you know, it's God's, God's beauty or something like that, or God's, like, creativity or some shit like that. And then again, you know, we would see something that was beautiful, and it was like, oh, God must have had fun designing that sort of thing. Redu- so for someone like yeah, that— Reducing beauty to the truth again, yeah. <laughs> That, that's it exactly exactly so for someone like that the appreciation of beauty is i i would argue is like in a fully dualist framework right like this is why nature critiques christianity precisely because you can't actually enjoy life nature and history as ends in themselves or as things in themselves but only as means to this kind of like transcendent other under which everything is subsumed and ultimately explained by and so there's a kind of like defaming of the um actual robustness of, of what the thing is that's that's imminent to you, you know, all in the name of some putative transcendence. Again, like you said, reducing everything to truth, right? And so I think if you are more on the spectrum towards thinking dualistically, like then that then then that's like maybe one extreme, right? And then you mm-hmm. will tend towards interpretations and appreciations of beauty that fall towards that end. Right? And I think even like evolutionary thought like radical reductive evolutionary thought can 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 operate in that way a lot of times, right? Yeah. Like reducing it to the beautiful laws of evolutionary movement. Yeah, good. Yada, 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 yada. Yeah, reduction right? to, to mathematical so principles it, basically, yeah. That's right, which I think does this, it falls into a similar trap. I think it's on more of that dualist end of the spectrum. And then there's maybe more of like an extreme eminence or pantheistic appreciation of nature which i think is more of like where muir is at and i think where i i I kind of flip between the two because who knows how much my psyche has been forged in the fires of dualism how much of (laughs) of that is still in me you know like like i'll probably forever it's it's like you know how christians used to say pride is the last sin that leaves your body for me it's probably going to be like dualism is the last sin that leaves my body you got to kill the dualist cop in your head yeah (laughs) yeah exactly so but I, i i think that that consciously like i feel the words of Muir, and I feel that's why I'm interested in Eastern kind of pantheistic thought. That's why I'm interested in the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze, you know, and, and more kind of materialist readings of things. Um, that 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 then again, some of them can fall into dualist camps as well. Um, as we just said, anything that kind of reduces it to a law, a mathematical law, or the law of history, or the dialectic, you know, anything like that can kind of fall into a, a trap of of idealistic dualism. But so I think I think that it kind of fits on that spectrum, you know, for for where the source of the appreciation of nature comes from, and it changes through your life as you learn different things about how to orient yourself to the other. But for me, 
one of the recent experiences I can just say anecdotally is that I got like really teary-eyed legitimately when I was particularly in the June Lake Loop and I was I just felt so small and I felt overwhelmed by the size and the immensity and the scope of of standing in this this basin by this lake with these mountain ranges that are just so big and and I think for me also it was that encounter with a freshness and a newness a, a reminder of how big those things were like you know if you're around it all the time you might not you might not have that experience of just how awe inspiring those things are but there was this massive waterfall it's called like horsetail waterfall that um people should google it it's fucking beautiful and it was like in full flow when we were there um it's up by june lake for people who might be interested and you're just in this basin in this loop where there's this series of lakes and streams and and one i have a history there so that's part of it right so i'm connecting again and like reigniting that historical love that is related to family and friends and things like that but there was also i think a true pure encounter with like the sublimity of immensity and i think it just it made me feel like overwhelmed and um and so for me i think there's something in that and and i think this also ties into what i was saying earlier about like this rebelliousness this freedom this liberatory experience of of not being bogged down by the demands and the expectations of of a society that i that i have substantial and serious and long standing critiques of which seem to fade away when you're in that kind of environment the rhythms of nature do take over the time of nature takes over and those things they seep into your body and it's a physical experience it's not just simply like a conscious cognizing it, 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 I, I know i'm going along along here but the last thing i'll say is i i read this other little essay previously about like the different experience of nature from someone like emerson and thoreau to someone like muir whereas emerson kind of reduces his encounter with the nature to the gaze and it's all about like that phenomenological which maybe goes back to what we were talking about earlier that that ability to phenomenologize the thing in my experience of it whereas muir mm. seems to kind of not rush to that phenomenological assessment yeah. or that interpretation in the first instance and he allows the thing to be and to wash over him first and i think i think that it's something there's something powerful and beautiful about that and i think i had one of those experiences when i was when i was there most recently that it just washed over me and and um yeah it was it was beautiful and whatever that experience was i, I can try and interpret it after the fact I, I don't know if i'll ever be able to adequately describe it it was powerful and it was overwhelming and it was big and it was meaningful and it it made my body actually feel things you know in in a way that that felt spontaneous yeah i like that idea that it seems like um proper appreciation requires a kind of distance right and i do worry that sometimes as much as like the sort of pantheistic tendency is much better than the, the you know the classical dualist tendency um it can sometimes fall prey to losing the distance right the appropriate distance mm-hmm. um and and mir does seem to capture like both the appropriate distance but also doesn't fall into like oh but also i'm not this thing at all right 
I'm not part of this thing. Like you can say, this is kind of the Hegelian thing, right? Like I am both part of the thing and not the thing at the same time. And I have to be able to synthesize those two things together without contradiction. Yeah, the the radical pantheist idea that you're critiquing, maybe it also, it has its own level of control because everything is always already presented to me. Everything is always already mm-hmm. like unified. Everything is always already mine, right? And I don't think that's, that's all pantheism, but I think that there's, especially like with new age pantheistic ideals, I think that there's still a utilitarianism that seeps in the back door there because everything is always already pre-coded as being one for me, which is actually not the true essence, I think, of pantheism. There has to be a distance that's still there. Yeah, and I'd imagine someone of the of the like pantheist tendency would say like, well, no, it's not mine because I am the thing. There is no possessive relationship because possession only comes about when you have subject and object and we're collapsing that whole distinction, right? But at the same time, I mean, both like, that sounds all good in theory, but in practice, it never actually works out that way, right? But even at the theory, exactly. even at the theory level, collapsing that distance between the thing doesn't make it like a possession thing, but it does sort of remove the kind of terrifying otherness of the thing in an important way mm-hmm. uh, and nullifies mm-hmm. it a little bit, right? And it oftentimes comes out with the thing being totally innocuous and totally unthreatening and stuff like that, right? And so it's, it's mm. kind of a... Exactly. A, an inoculation of the thing, really. Not in every case, obviously, but in some cases. And so, yeah, it seems like you've got, you've got to introduce that that distance, that appropriate distance, not full distance, not subject-object, complete separation kind of distance, but the appropriate distance to really encounter a thing authentically, right? And yeah, just made me think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about um, some of this like big picture, super abstract, you know, how do truth, goodness, and beauty kind of relate to each other? Cause I'm, I'm doing this work on tragedy and I want to at some point give an account of like what the aesthetic features of tragedy are. And one thing that's really hard to conceptualize, I think is like, what is being appreciated in a tragedy? So you have like this aesthetic, uh, reductionism, which says, well, the only thing that is actually being appreciated in a tragedy is like the catharsis. You're just getting pleasure out of expunging or purging a negative feeling, and that just seems. Totally you mean you mean a liter- me. like a literary tragedy, not not a, or, or do you just mean like any oh, sort of tragic? Both. I mean, yeah, it comes from okay. Aristotle's analysis of literary tragedies as being as necessarily having this cathartic function, right? Um, but then you you start to think about like when we think about there's a kind of pleasure that comes from thinking about even real life tragedies that there's a kind of beauty to them. Mm-hmm. Right, even in their in even they're terrible, and so how in the world can a terrible thing be beautiful? Right, that seems completely the opposite the way that it should be. Uh, and that doesn't mean it's entirely beautiful. It's obviously you know ugly in certain ways too, but it also has a kind of beauty to it, and that's best exemplified in in the literary tragedies, right? And so, yeah, I'm trying to think about like what what is beautiful about even these things that seem like they're not beautiful. Um, so I'm not really sure how to think about it yet. I do think there's something to do with like, there's the combination of truth in, in the sort of um, guise of understanding and then goodness. And that understanding and goodness come together in a certain way that produces beauty. And that's kind of how they all interrelate. And beauty is sort of like the, the bringing together of them in an important way. But I'm not sure how to, how to sort of conceptualize it on a more concrete level yet but it's got me thinking like all this stuff is really helpful for trying to think about what 
what actually is um, being appreciated when something is beautiful. Because it's not just mechanistic, you know, producing a feeling in you, which is like in the in the no, context of no, tragedy, no. it's just the, the the purging or the catharsis, right? It's it's much more it's much more deep than that, right? It's not just having a feeling. You're having the feeling about something, right? Um, yeah, I was going to say you can't have the catharsis immediately. It comes on the back of an encounter with that that otherness of the horror or of the overwhelm of the immensity. Don't you which think? Which requires understanding, right? Not full understanding, not yeah. not like subsuming under a concept and now I've mastered it kind of understanding. But you have to understand that you're being overwhelmed, <laughs> right? Um, and so there, yeah, there has yeah, to be yeah. some understanding of the thing, what parts of it are overwhelming you, right? So yeah, it's yeah. it's like that. It, it scrambles our codes. It 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 like it it has to be confronting in such a sense that it actually destroys you. This is this is something that like the 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 Sufi mystics, uh, Christian mystics get as well, you know. But I'm thinking of Rumi with this idea of ruination. You know, that there's something, and I don't mean the roomy of Instagram quotes, my <laughs> friends, but, um, you know, uh, but there's something about the terror of ruination, of being ruined, of your, of your presuppositions, your beliefs, your comforts, your codes by which you take up how to live and, and, and in what ways you want to live. Those things, when they get destroyed, I think that's, there's something, there's something in that 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 relates to this you know yeah that, that just that shatters it and then there's growth in that there's there's maturity in that yeah there's learning right that's a um yeah. that's that's understanding um to a certain degree um and this 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 is this is like i want I, uh, one of my biggest frustrations about like contemporary culture right now, and I and I don't know how to formalize it, and I don't know if I'm going to write like a book on it or an article on it or what, but but I need like help dealing with this because I feel like we live in a society that more than anything, not maybe I, I've probably said that ten times. It can't be more than anything when it's ten different things. But <laughs> one of the characterizations, the big characteristics of of like the tendency of contemporary society is towards like this over-romanticism and fetishization of youth to the neglect of maturity. And I wonder if there isn't some sort of connection here to what we're talking about with in order to mature, you have to learn. In order to learn, you have to encounter the other. In order to encounter the other, you have to not be so precious about self and you not rush to assessment and the desire to control and to master and to know right like like Foucault writes about the will to know um you know Nietzsche as well right Foucault gets it from Nietzsche but like there's this tendency of like the need to master through knowledge in order to control and and there's there's I think an immaturity in that right because if you always already have an answer for everything, or even if you always already have a technique to find an answer for everything, like a method that is going to assure you that no matter what problem confronts you, but you always already have a sol- like a like a like an axiom to solve it or a method to solve it, then you never truly encounter the other. This is what Deleuze actually critiques as the dogmatic image of thought, right? At least part of his critique of the dogmatic image of thought, and you never truly allow thought to shock you to encounter you, to change you, to destroy you, to ruin you 
in the way that we were just talking about with the with with Rumi as a as a mystic. And I think there's something valuable about ruination, perpetually. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you were talking about earlier with the Bung Chul Han and the um, emphasis on negativity and the fact that that's being lost in our current culture. Right? We we need these uh, negative moments, the tearing with the negative, right? As Hegel calls it, to um, to progress and develop. But you have to feel safe enough to allow yourself to be ruined, and I think that's the reason why ruination. An encounter with the other is also so terrifying because in a world of political disenfranchisement and apathy and economic exploitation and physical fears coming from, you know, uh, viruses and, and, and media confrontations and all of these other things, there's no safety. So because you don't feel safe in a sense that you will ultimately land somewhere softly, we run from ruination we run from any sort of joyful experience of the tragic that would lead to a true growth and catharsis and then maturity so we constantly are stunting ourselves and remaining immature because we don't have that safety so this is why it's i think it's so important that you have a social safety net in whatever ways that means we have to discuss in other times but like don't you think that maybe that's important that that, that that's maybe one of the the huge um, like preventatives to any sort of to to like a sort of like mass capacity for this tendency towards maturity and ruination is that that we're just not safe, so we can't expose ourselves. Yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. Although I think also um, you could be safe and then still not do this process because you live in a culture where you're attuned to only seeking immediate pleasure or to seeking pleasure itself rather than the activities that that accompany pleasure, right? Um, so, I mean, I, I do agree with you that like a social safety net is super important for allowing space for people to engage in these activities that are, you know, existentially risky and stuff. Um, you could even have that and and not engage in these things. If, if sort of you grew up in a culture where you, you're led to understood that, um, to understand that only uh, like hedonic pleasure seeking is what matters, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe sports, I think, sports betting I, I, I would be wonder. less risky if you uh, got a check every week, um, and that would lose some of its some of its like hedonic value, right? But you could, <laughs> but you would still, you could still like engage in a whole lot of that shit. Well, and also, if we didn't think that we were going to be judged by society, or if you didn't think that you were going to be judged in the afterlife, you know, um, like this is, you know, I, I don't know how true it is, but once you. Once you kind of, um, you know, Epicurus, the whole idea of like once you demolish the idea that there are gods in the afterlife and that you're going to be punished, well, then that like frees you up for for living in this life sort of thing. I, I, I don't know how important it is, but it feels very important to me in my understanding of these kinds of experiences to like kill the father, kill the big other, you know, kill kill the superstructures and the pressures that are imposed upon you and and all of the kind of um, surveillance that comes along with it where you're constantly walking on eggshells. The more you can kind of get rid of that stuff, the more you can allow yourself to actually engage in these types of po- possibilities for ruination and, and exploration. Because then you're not trying to just maintain the status quo, which is then ultimately just going to entrap you into a system of immaturity, not learning... Um, kind of like radical reduction, utilitarianism, yada, 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 because that's the 
that's the the movement of the system. That's the the the, the medium is the message. That's the medium in which we're swimming. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that like, killing the gods is a necessary step in that direction. I just don't think it's so sufficient, right? Necessary, but not sufficient. Because I mean, this kind yeah, of goes yeah, back yeah. to like my, my sort of critique of Heidegger, which is like, um, you know, uh, killing the gods or whatever might leave you in a space where you're like being towards death. But that doesn't get you to like authentic existence um, or whatever. I don't even think authentic existence is a coherent concept, but um, you could be stuck in like a, in just like a loop of meaningless activity at that point. Like there has to be a reorientation <laughs> towards something meaningful. Yes. Um, which requires more than just killing the gods, right? You might kill the gods and wake up the next day and be like, okay, what the fuck now do I do? Um, and, that, and you could be stuck there in that sort of liminal space. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that uh, positive-negative liberty duality that is kind of important. You can't just free yourself from your chains in the very sort of kind of French revolutionary sense or existentialist sense, you've got to also have some positive constructive activities that you can commit yourself to, to build with. Yeah. But that's why, but that's why the Heide the Heideggerian conception of Mitzayin is also important being with. So it's not just being towards death and, and whatnot, but there's also a sense in which, you know, being with is important being with others. And this is why a lot of like, um, you know, post-Marxists, um, I think Nancy takes uh, Heidegger's prompts towards Mitzayn quite important as being, I know Esposito does, uh, there's a great book um, called like The Actuality of Communism by, oh God, uh, Bruno, is it Bruno? Oh God, who did it? I can't remember, it's called The Actuality of Communism. But um, there's a discussion of uh, uh, a kind of post-Marxist who takes um, Heidegger quite seriously named Esposito, and I can't remember his first name either at the moment. But the importance of Mitzayn, of being with, as, as part of like a positive project of, of building in the aftermath or, or simultaneously dialectically with, you know, the negative freedom from exploitation and oppression and things. Yeah, I mean, Hegel had it long before Heidegger, right? Freedom is being with oneself yeah. and the other. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Muir to Hegel. That's the title <laughs> of the episode. <laughs> uh, All right. Should we yeah. jump to the sticky leaves? Let's do it, brother. All righty. For those, those who are unfamiliar or maybe it's been too long, the sticky leaves segment is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's providing us meaning in a potentially but hopefully not entirely meaningless world. So, Austin, you've got the torch today. What's doing it for you this week? Well, if um, we're going to practice what we preach, I want to leave people with something that is upbuilding and encouraging that they can go and they can create with in beauty and in reflection. And um, I just have to talk about what I think is probably my favorite film that I've seen in a very long time. I think I mentioned it to you Um I'm not sure if it's like totally available just yet, but I want I want to put it on people's radar. And um, if it is out for people wherever you're wherever you're at in your territory, please go check it out and make sure you prepare yourself for it because it's not an entertaining film. You know, like that doesn't mean there isn't entertainment value, but it's different. Um, it is a very contemplative and I think beautiful film, but it's pretty slow and it's not extremely plot heavy. So it's not going to uh, like excite the senses in a lot of ways. 
but it's Perfect Days by Vim Vendors. I told you about this, right? Did you? I don't remember this. It is my... I saw it at the Sydney Film Festival this past year. Um, It competed for the Palme d'Or at Cannes as well, and it got shitloads of praise. It won um, a couple of prizes. It won Best Actor at Cannes. And it's the Japanese entry for the Best International Feature Film at the uh, upcoming Academy Awards. It's uh, So it's directed by Vim Vendors, but it takes place in Japan. And apparently Vendors, like Tokyo, is, is like his second home. He spent a shitload of time there. And um, so he and his producers and co-writer, who are Japanese, um, they were kind of like doing some other project. They were in Tokyo and they were talking about something else. And I think, you know, one of his co-writers and producers uh, was kind of like, well, why don't you make a film about this? You know, like a like a feature film about this I- these ideas. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So they did. And they turned it into this beautiful contemplative, contemplative musing film about a simple life. So I'll just read the synopsis here. The synopsis is Hirayama works as a toilet cleaner in Tokyo. He seems content. Oh, with you his did tell life. me about this. Yeah, he follows, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, he follows a structured everyday life and dedicates his free time to his passion for music and books. Hirayama also has a fondness for trees and photographs them with an with a film camera, might I add. Um, <laughs> and then more of his past is gradually revealed through a series of unexpected encounters. Um, basically, someone from his past comes into his life. And there's nothing salacious that happens. Um, nobody fucks anybody over. There's no intrigue or, you know, who done it kind of stuff. But it's it's this beautiful, like, moving along through the life alongside this person who's, who's like, he's kind of like a modern-day messiah figure in the sense that he sacrifices himself with this simple job and I don't want to say too much about the plot but he doesn't have to like he could have he could have had a different life he could have had a quote unquote easier life a more bourgeois type of life but it's like he's chosen the monastic life and in that he is like a holy fool I believe in a world that that doesn't appreciate him as being a fully robust participant because he's there to just clean the toilets or he's there to just kind of service these kind of basic biological societal needs but i think i think that the film is absolutely beautiful and it's absolutely amazing and i uh, you got to check it out and it kind of fits into what we're talking about today with like an appreciation of nature and the little things he's got like his own little home garden and he's taking care of his home <laughs> garden but it's just it's fucking amazing but the reason i say you also want to prepare yourself is like i said you want to make sure you're awake and you're alert and you're ready to go into something to be an active participant it's not just a a passive viewing experience but like literally man it's one of those films that i think changed changed me like i came out of that film and i was like i'm a different person now and i think for the months that have gone by i'm like "I, i i i i'm viewing things differently i want things differently i it's stuck with me in a way that uh, that doesn't often happen with films but yeah perfect days by vim vendors who also directed one of my favorite films of all time wings of, wings desire. of desire so yeah. i mean yeah 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 which might be my favorite film as an adult you know other than top gun which is like my childhood <laughs> favorite film. so top gun and wings top gun and wings of desire you want to know who austin you're, you're is the That's only who austin the is. only person in the world who has those top two yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
No, this this movie has uh, you written all over it. I'm, yeah, I I remember I uh, I just checked and I have it written down on my list of things to see because when you mentioned it, it was that was a while ago though. It was several months ago, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. This sounds this sounds great. I'm really excited to see this when it's available. Yeah, and and I think it's starting to become available. So I mean. I can only recommend so much that people go see things in theaters. And of course, if things aren't distributed in your area, it makes it really difficult, which is also why we need to preserve capital C cinema, please, for the love of fucking God. Yes. But if if you watch it at home when you're streaming, just make sure you're in it and you're you're like you're you're an active participant in like the poetic experience you know or go to the cinema i saw it in the cinema with like a big ass crowd of people and i felt like we were all having a religious experience maybe it was only me but i felt like we were all having an experience so dude there's something to say about um i I just saw killers of the flower moon in the theater uh with a a, a packed theater full of people and that's not exactly like a crowd you know pleasing you know it's not full of arousal it's it's fairly slow um and yet it felt like man appreciating art with other people is just such a amazing and beautiful experience to have even if they don't say anything or do anything just being around people all appreciating the same thing together we can't lose that right concerts movies it's a really important thing and if we end up losing that it's going to be such an incredible loss I know. It breaks my heart. It breaks my fucking heart. Matter of fact, I don't think I'm going to go, but like Lagwagon is playing in Sydney tomorrow night and I wanted to go, but I was like, I don't know if I'm going to go or not. But like, I haven't been to a punk show in forever. And I was talking about this with a, with a few people over the past few weeks. I was like, I want to go to a punk show, but I'm not going to sit down. I'm not going to have my phone out. I'm going to be in the fucking pit, in the <laughs> middle of the circle pit. Like that's I you need that you know like that's uh. <laughs> and I I just had some friends that went to a concert and you know it's like the same thing you get like okay boomer like but complaining about how like technology is advancing and stuff like that but they're like man everyone was on their fucking phone just holding their phone up the whole time and they're like just be here yeah like, dude it's awful enjoy the enjoy the kind of like presence of this mass of people like put the fucking phone down and mosh and dance and sing and move and cry and laugh and whatever you know but fuck so i don't know try to have that experience with this film if you can for sure thanks for reminding me too i'm really excited to see it dude there have been a handful of films that i've seen over the last like couple of years that i feel like are like ones that I just want to recommend to everybody. And the two, like this is number one, and then another one is After Sun, which like I didn't just cry yeah. when I got out of After Sun. Like I broke down. One of my favorites like, too, yeah. It was, dude, I like fucking broke down crying. Um, and then Past Lives. Like, listen, I don't think Past Lives is a perfect film, but I think when we talk about maturity – the thing I love about past lives is that there is a maturity in how it deals with mm-hmm. the erotic desire and with love and eros. I don't mean erotic in the sense of like like sex or necessarily physical intimacy, but desire, eros. Like the way that it deals with eros to me felt so mature because it didn't just reduce it to like the salacious things that you would get with 90% of the stories yeah, that exactly. try to tackle that subject matter. It's not and just it felt so mature. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's painful and it's difficult. And the decision at the end, it doesn't make you feel happy. And it also leaves you with complexity. 
Yeah. You know? And that's okay. And I was like, fuck, like, those three films, and I'm sure there are a couple others, but, like, those three in particular, like, I'm like, man, like, that, I got chills right now even just thinking about it. Like, those, those, those did it for me. Perfect Days, number one, After Sun, number two, Past Lies, uh, was also really great at number three. But those, they, they just do something, I think, at a, they do something different with cinema, and I'm like, fuck yeah. And, of course, I saw all three of them in the theater, and <laughs> maybe that was also maybe there's that's not just a coincidence you know maybe there's something integral to that yeah i wish i had seen past lives in the theater it's my favorite movie of this year um and if anyone hasn't uh seen it well first of all go see the movie but then after that there's um i think it's the new york times does this uh video essay series called anatomy of a scene do you know about this I've seen it, but I don't know who the creator is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember who runs. I think it's the New York times, but they, um, on their platform, but they, they did, um, an episode of anatomy of a scene on the final scene from past lives with the director whose name I'm forgetting right now. Um, and Celine, is it Celine song? That sounds right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she, she describes, um, that final scene, which I think is one of the best final scenes in movie history for me. I mean, it was, it left me utterly speechless. Um, it, it describes it super well, uh, in a way that I think help helps, like the analysis helps you appreciate it even more, which is, I think the, the, the virtue of good analysis. Um, so yeah. Oh, cool. Recommend okay. past lives and that, uh, YouTube video anatomy of a scene on the final scene in the movie. Awesome. Well, go forth, uh, our parliament of, of listeners, go forth and upbuild yourself with good art, uh, and go into nature. As John Muir says, the mountains are calling. So go, 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 go. <laughs> you, know, you know what's calling for me? Well, I literally Basketball? right now it's dinner because it's eight o'clock and I'm hungry. But lately what's been calling me is podcasting. That's the activity that oh, I appreciate. Shit. Podcasting with you, man. We've been doing this for almost eight years now, I believe. Wow. Maybe seven yeah. years. Something like that. But uh, I love it, man. I'm glad we're back at it. It was missing yeah, from my too. life. Um, yeah, I'm just so glad to be back doing this with you. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, it, it's like it, 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 it's an essential part of my existence, I think, you know? Yeah, it's reinvigorating or just invigorating. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. So, all right. Well, um, we're going to be doing this moving forward. Um, so people don't have to worry about uh, there being too many lapses moving forward, at least for the foreseeable future. We're, we're re-inspired. We've got our systems in place. And so more content coming for you. Not as if there's fucking too, not enough content out there in the world. We can't, we gotta, we can't call it content. It's something else. It's not I hate content. that word. What, yeah. I we hate gotta content. come up with a different, yeah, we gotta come up with a different term. <laughs> it's just podcasting, man. Just don't, uh, don't reduce it to some quantifiable thing. Okay. Yeah. It's conversation. Uh, Enlightening, illuminating <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Even that sounds cheesy. We gotta come up with a better term for it. Fucking hell. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah, where can people find us, Troy? Uh, owlsatdawn.com, patreon.com slash owlsatdawn. I guess we're still kind of on Twitter, but who knows how long that's going to last. Um, yeah, we'll try to 
we'll try to have outlets for people. Um, I will say too, with Patreon, like, um, if you kind of stopped supporting us, we totally understand why we hadn't been consistent with episodes. But we are going to try to be consistent, and um, it would be great. It would it would definitely help us out. Um, because there's just a little bit of hosting fees, and then I've got like an annual fucking fee that I gotta pay. So it takes care of that stuff. Um, and if there's anything extra on top of that, that's always really lovely and helpful. But um, yeah, Patreon.com/slash Owls at Dawn. And um, yeah, I haven't been as active on Twitter lately. I don't know. Are you still doing the the, the X Twitter thing? I I kind of have mostly removed myself, except for every once in a while, like retweeting things. But I think that's pretty much it. Uh, there's nothing else we got to say unless there's anything I can't think of. There's got to be something that we're supposed to say. I wonder, it's been so oh, yeah? long. What's that? I wonder if I can remember what it is. Yeah, what is it? Do, yeah. Hmm. Do you think maybe it's like rhymes with Shmash Madanya Shmerikoski? <laughs> something like that? I, I don't know. Something familiar about that. Oh, I, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Dasodanya Marikonsky. Yeah.